0: Main man. Main man.
1: Main
2: man.
0: Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 16 in our series that explores the history of Main Man which was a groundbreaking management rights company that reshaped the business side of rock and roll in the 70s, becoming synonymous with the decadence and indulgences that are now rock folklore.
3: A lot of it was going to restaurants, piling in and out of limos um, in various conditions.
1: Main Man was formed by Tony DeVries an entrepreneurial impresario who worked with a diverse range of clients that included amanda Lear, dana gillespie lou reed mick ronson mick ralphs john mellencamp iggy pop
4: mott the hoople and david bowie i was just writing like there was no tomorrow i would write often four or five songs a day i mean i just couldn't stop i wouldn't stop and i didn't really know where any of the writing was going i mean i was trying everything i could i wanted to work in every style I mean, that's the kind of impression the Beatles left on you, you know, when you realise that if you have the ability to work in different styles, then use it.
1: In this episode, we're marking the 50th anniversary of the album The Man Who Sold the World, originally released in America in November 1970. Now it's regarded as a classic and a great example of the way that David's music was evolving as he searched for the elusive follow-up to the success of Space Oddity. The album was written and rehearsed while David and his fellow musicians lived together in Haddon Hall and recorded at Trident and AdVision Studios in London, produced by Tony Visconti. It was the lyrical content of the songs that David was writing for this album in early 1970 that particularly impressed Tony DeFries and persuaded him to become David's manager, keen to unlock his rock star potential. At the time, David was inspired by intellectual heavyweights like William Blake, Alistair Crowley and Franz Kafka and his lyrics were considerably darker than earlier songs exploring themes like madness, violence and alienation. The title track in particular is a reference to a Victorian poem called Annie Ganesh about a haunted mansion in Nova Scotia. The best person to explain how this work shaped the man who sold the world is Tony DeVries.
0: The other day upon the stair I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish, that man would go away. This is the opening verse. In this case, it was a poem written by W.E. Hearn. And it almost certainly influenced David, who was familiar with that particular writer from the late 1800s. And that line that David begins, Man Who Sold the World with, we passed upon. The We spoke of was and when. Although he wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which came as some surprise, although I spoke into his eyes. All the music for that song was created by Visconti and Ronson, who worked together to arrange and record the musical track. Rehearsals were done at Haddon Hall, to create music and arrangements. And at that point, there were no lyrics. There was simply some small part of a melody from David. And this was a complete departure from David's earlier work, which had always been inspired by vaudeville, by musical performers like Anthony Newley, by folk performers, So his entire history of work until that time was either based in this semi-theatrical, pantomime style of music and performance, or early folk rock bands or folk rock performers. And what was always missing was this hardcore blues rock and real hard rock Influence, And this didn't come in any way from Visconti, but really came from Ronson. Ronson's influence on the music is massively noticeable on the arrangements, on the guitar sound especially. But Ronson was also very good at arranging percussion and arranging how the drums and the guitar would work. And especially keen on creating resonance between guitar, amplifier, guitar, and essentially changes, phase changes, pedal changes, changes in the acoustic to electric, and with electric guitar, very much changes that reflected the different elements you could get from creating wah-wah and other types of acoustic effects, almost always influenced by the distancing of cabinet to guitar, amp to guitar, and changing that sound with different instruments. And then adding, for example, a Moog synthesizer. And that's interesting because in this case, the musician who's playing the Moog at Trident Studios, initially at AdVision, is Ralph Mace. Now, here's Ralph Mace, who's a 40 plus year old classical piano player, an orchestral pianist, who's also the musical director of Mercury which in this case is Philip sat in the London space, and he's approached, probably by Visconti, whilst they're working on The Man of the World, particularly to come along and play a Moog synthesizer. Again, at this point in time, the Moog synthesizer was very novel, there weren't many of them especially in England so Ralph Mace asks George Harrison who's actually got one if he can borrow the Moog to do this track for Bowie and George agrees and off they go and that's one of the great features about the track that made it so different was that you've got the Moog synthesizer which Ronson immediately becomes acclimatized to because it's a wonderful piece of machinery that allows you to produce all kinds of uh, sound effects and tracks and instruments, and it's a keyboard. And so for Ronson, who is a master of instruments and multi instrumentalist, and also engaged in creating this song, it's a treasure trove. And he can ask most to create specific effects and melodies and overlapping and underlying rhythms alongside drums and guitar and make it also the piano when needed. And so it creates a track for David that is far superior than anything he's done before. At this point, David has started writing songs post music, whereas previously he was often writing songs before there was any music. So now he tends to leave the lyrics to the last. And Visconti has actually complained in a few different interviews that he got very exhausted by working with David when he had no guidance as to what he was supposed to be doing. So that it was a relief when Ronson came along, because Ronson could provide music, even though there were no lyrics. But on Man Who Sold the World, which was probably one of the first things that Ronson and Visconti did together for David, David still left the lyrics to the very last moment. And in fact, only came up with the lyrics although he might have written them earlier, but he only allowed them to be recorded at the very last moment, as it were, the point at which when you're making a sound recording, certainly was true in those days, before digital came along, but analog sound recordings, the last phase was always the final mix after which you had to go master the recording. David, in this case, waited until the last day of the last session of the last mix before he put down his lyrics which made Visconti very nervous and as he puts it himself exhausted from having to cope with writing music for a lyric that was a ghost a non-existent lyric and David would only connect to the writing process by indicating as at this point musically it was Visconti, Ronson, Woody, uh, Woodmansey, and Ralph Mace who were making the music and it was Visconti and Ronson who were creating the music, albeit they didn't get credited for it, they got credited for arranging and producing but not as co-writers and That led to also some issues for Visconti, which he's commented on. He thought that he and Mick should be given some writer credit, but ultimately David made the decision that he was the writer of the entire song. And it's part of the reason that Visconti and Bowie parted. Another reason, of course, was that Visconti was not a fan of mine didn't really um, appreciate my what he saw more as a taking over of David than propelling him to some stardom and also Visconti felt left up because I didn't consult with him about how I was going to propel David forward I was happy to talk to him about the production and the sound and the music and all of that but I didn't engage him as a proponent in how do we make David recognized by everybody, and not just us. And that was um, also something of an issue. But here we are, we are half a century later. What happened to that song? That song didn't do well initially in the UK, nor did the album that followed it. And it didn't do well initially in the U.S. But in the U.S. it reached out to an underground following that David had because it had the sort of feel in its musical approach and its lyrics that many other rock bands, not folk rock but actual rock bands or blues bands or blues rock bands and ultimately even bands like Led Zeppelin were compared to that song and later on that album and of course Ronson was deliberately trying to produce his own version of Cream and that attempt to put Bowie on the path of a Cream type band where Ronson could be Eric Clapton was part of the opportunity that Ronson saw to make music that would give him a chance to essentially experiment. And once we got to a staging of this, once we got to doing this song and all the other songs that were incorporated into the first round of live performances, not the acoustic ones, but when we had the entire band, when we had the Spiders and when we had David. And before that happened, even as they were doing dates in the UK as the simply Bowie before we got to the Spiders so the dates we did in the UK on the what we think of what main men think of what I think of as the first Bowie UK concert tour because this is the first time David went on stage as the lead singer in a band that were strictly a rock band they weren't a folk group they weren't a heavy metal group but they were without any question a rock band and the outstanding player in that band was always Mick and even though he was on the effects side he was right we bought him all kinds of pedals and uh, wah-wahs and different baby amps and bigger amps and all the bits and pieces that you need to create astonishing sounds from an electric or even an acoustic if it's electrically connected. Given those opportunities, Ronson was a master architect of how to arrange little tiny amps and great big amps, what they called baby amps and cabinet amps at the time, create settings on their presets and pick settings that were normally not picked, convert them into essentially a round of resonating acoustic devices that he could control by bringing his guitar closer to one cabinet or the other by using a wah-wah pedal or more than one or ones that actually conflicted with each other, and producing sounds like Hendrix and Beck and Clapton as though there was no effort involved. The only difficulty with that was we wanted Ronson to be more front of stage. To get his most desirable sounds from the guitar, he needed to be closer to the amp, which meant he needed to be rather back of stage so we eventually compromised we moved his amps closer to the front of the stage we gave him lots of pedals but we taped them to the stage so that he would stay in a position where he wasn't in the shadows of the cabinet but he was forefront and by doing that it took a while to do that but as we did that Ronson did become a central figure and his guitar playing became a central part, especially on songs like Width of a Circle or All the Mad Men, Man Who Sold the World, Rock and Roll Suicide. These were standout opportunities for Ronson to provide background and very often, Width of a Circle is a great example, astonishing solo performances which were immensely popular and gave him a huge following. And of course, all of that helped to push David forward. And particularly on this album, on this May Sold the World album, and on the next two, three, four albums, it gave David a massive US following. And that was probably part of the problem we had with Visconti because Ultimately, of course, he benefited because he went back to work with David after David and I broke up and did some wonderful stuff. But at that point in time, it was possible for Visconti to see that we could actually make David not just a UK star and not just a world star, but a superstar. And whatever else... It certainly got Visconti more attention as a producer because I do believe he was fond of David and he, was, um, he wanted him to be successful. But he was, I think, resentful that he wasn't becoming as successful as David because he wasn't part of a Bowie band. But again, he didn't really fit the profile of what a Bowie band needed. And as David did get to be a superstar and the reflection on Tony was always that he was part of that process. He was there at the beginning, he was a fan and he was also a friend and he was part of the history of someone who became a major musical influence, which made Tony himself a major musical influence. He and I were never really competing for anything. I simply wanted to make David famous however it needed to be done and he wanted to be part of a musical if you like evolution or revolution which eventually became part of simply because he was there at the beginning so all in all everybody benefited even though you might consider that Ronson should have benefited more
1: As Tony said, it was Rono and Visconti who created the musical thematics for The Man Who Sold the World. So at this point, it's worth including Visconti's recollections of how he and David first met Rono and began working on the album. We
2: started working with uh, John Cambridge, and uh, he was the drummer of a group I produced called Junior's Eyes. John was the drummer. And John told us that he came from Hull. He was in a band called The Rats. And, like, one of the best guitarists he ever worked with was this Bloke called Mick Ronson. And um, David and I realized that we needed that heavy rock element in what we were doing because the Space Oddity album was kind of gentle. It was along the lines of folk rock. We didn't have any, you know, brilliant uh, lead guitarist on it, which was essential and we should have done it, but we didn't know anybody. We were really naive. We were just finishing uh, the Space Oddity album and I was mixing a track called Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud. And we felt it needed some uh, guitar and some hand claps. And Mick was conveniently in the studio with his Les Paul. I think we plugged it right in the board. We, we didn't even have an amplifier. So he put some low guitar on the middle section, and he joined in hand claps in that section. Shortly afterwards, we did uh, a John Peel show. I, I forget what the name of the show was. He had a few Sunday shows. The Sunday Roast, the Sunday Joint. And I think they were going to call it the Sunday Joint, but they didn't. One of those shows we used Mick for the first time. David started writing the songs for for the Man Who Sold the World. We didn't know what the album was called, and and we were rehearsing in the basement. There was this little old wine cellar and underneath our flat, and that's where we began rehearsing. So then we felt gig worthy at a certain point, and we did some small gigs. Uh, I know, I think we did one in a pub in Croydon, and we did uh, one in Hounslow where. Um, Dave Cousins of the Straubs had a weekly whatever, you know, like new bands. I think it started out as a folk night, then it became a rock night. And uh, that was one of our best gigs. We actually cut our teeth on that one. That was We got good that night. That was a good night. By this time, it, it, we, we tried, you know, Space Oddity was a, a hit. And he never came up with a Space Oddity 2. It was a very much studio production thing you could only invent in a studio and very, very hard to perform live at the time. You couldn't crate around a Mellotron for a start, and there were no samplers yet. But we realized that we want more of a rock and roll element, and uh, it was a concerted effort to make The Man Who Sold the World a rock album. And I'll tell you who we wanted to be. Uh, according to Mick Ronson, we wanted to be Cream. And Mick sat me down. He Eric Clapton was... Uh, one of his gods, and so was Jeff Beck. And David adored Jeff Beck, as I did. But uh, I was the bass player, and Mick sat me down and uh, had me listen to Cream records. And he said, listen to Jack Bruce. He says, you have to play like that. And I went, "Okay, you know, uh, that kind of playing is halfway between lead guitar playing and bass playing. I I played both guitar and bass. I said, yeah, I could do that. And I practiced and practiced. And by the time we made a song called Width of a Circle, I was totally out of control as a bass player and and Mick was out of control as a guitar player. And that, that track is demonic. Mick certainly had a big influence on the album. He influenced the both of us forced us to go into that direction if he was going to be in the band you know and we loved it you know it was a very much a cooperative effort he he wasn't the captain of the team david was certainly the captain but mick was certainly you know a a big big bonus and showed us the way you know we i think david and i were in rock and roll bands you know like with uh 30 watt amplifiers and you know, things like that. We could play pop and rock, basically, but we were never in a heavy rock band. You know, Mick was the one who came in with a, uh, I think it was a 200-watt Marshall head on a stack. He had a stack of uh, two four by 10s maybe, and this was classic Spinal Tap. He had everything up to 11. God, it was deafening. I've got a lovely photo of David going down there with uh, my Stratocaster trying to figure out how to play at that volume. That's a completely different style of playing at that volume. Mick was all organized. He had the wah-wah pulled back to a certain tone setting, and... uh, he, everything else was, no matter if it was the, the man who sold the world or if she shook me cold, all the knobs were at ten. I remember at the end of the album, when it was mixed, we were all sitting down and it was, you know, stereo was actually a new thing then. Everyone, the, the, the sound of choice was mono, but we did a good stereo mix and I handed Mick the stereo headphones. I said, here, listen to this in stereo. You'll hear things going left to right and all that. He goes, he says, no, don't bother. He says, I, I can't hear out of my right ear. And um, he said, I could only hear bass out of my right ear. So this was from a few years, several years of playing with the uh, stack at ear height. You know, the second stack was, the second cabinet was up to the height of his ears. And he used to jam his guitar up against the speaker cabinet to get more feedback. And his ear would be only inches away from a 10-inch driver. I mean, it's insane. Even though they'd been
1: working together as The Hype and a few other variations, DeFries and Bowie were keen
2: for David and the band to work independently of each other. It was his idea for us to be a separate entity to him. And, you know, as you could see, this early on, David had a very clear vision of who he was going to be for the rest of his life. He was It was clear that he was going to be David Bowie and this would be his third album, The Man Who Sold The World would be his third album, and already he's got completely different backing, and there would be different backing in in the future, but he knew this, and he encouraged us to be a band unto ourselves. Both Mick and I could sing, and we actually made a couple of hype recordings for the label, which are floating around in the internet somewhere. As Tony worked more
1: with Rono, he began to slowly reveal the depth of his musical talents. I...
2: Loved Mick's musicianship. I loved him as a as a person, and he was very laid back. He had no agenda to push. He just wanted to play music. When we did a song like "All the Mad Men on the Man of Solo World album, David and we just started chatting all at once. You know, it was very much a communally made album. Mm. We'd say, "Tony, why don't you play some recorders on that middle part?" And because David knew I played recorders, and Mick said, "I play recorders too, but just like that, like not pushy." And he always, like, just, he never pushed his agenda. He just said, oh, let me try this, I can do that. And uh, he was very, very genteel, you know, very very affable man. And uh, it was great to work with him like that. He never really was aggressive. I wrote some parts for that album, and uh, we didn't have actual string players, but we we hired uh, the original Moog synthesizer that came to the UK and belonged to uh, George Martin. And I wanted to use the Moog synthesizer as an orchestra the way uh, Wendy Carlos did with the Switched on Bach album. And I was already writing string arrangements, but I said this would be wonderful to synthesize it. This was like, I didn't even think of using the synth as a synth. You know, I wanted to use it to emulate an orchestra. And when I started writing the parts out, Mick was looking over my As You know, we all lived together, and I was writing it on the kitchen table or somewhere, you know. And Mick was greatly interested, in and he, and he just casually dropped... You know, I, I play the violin, and uh, I studied as a kid... And I found out, you know, it just unfolded. As I said, he didn't push himself. I I just learned casually that he played violin as a kid. He took lots of lessons. He got up to some high-grade level. And his piano playing was at a high-grade level, too. He could play classical piano. And he looked at me with interest doing a score, which, you know, you take a huge piece of paper with 18 lines of music across, and then you draw with pencil, you draw lines vertically and he was so interested in that process that's the one thing he was never introduced to i actually helped him become a string arranger through that and when he went on to do hunky dory he got his uh, first string writing lessons to me i mean how to actually organize the score and all that but as i said it was i knew he had it in him and i really encouraged him to uh, live and breathe on this album i wanted him to use all his talents the kind of producer i am DeFreeze was keen to ensure that the most influential rock writers and
1: critics of the time were continually updated on David's musical evolution. And one of the key supporters during this period was Charles Shaw Murray, who really appreciated David's talent, and he was one of the first to acknowledge the importance of Ronno's skills. The way
4: I always saw it was, if you look at them as a group, then Ronno was Keith to David's Mick, And a lot of the fans perceived them as a double act in the same way that Jagger and Richards were, you know, a classic lead singer and guitarist stage-front team. I mean, Mick, you know, if we look at the Jagger-Richards or Page Plant analogy, Mick didn't write and didn't produce, except when they co-produced Lou Reed's album, which is another story. But he arranged a lot of the material. He was a genius arranger and uh, despite the fact that he could do the guitar hero thing like nobody's business, you know, he was a trained musician who was just as capable of writing a string arrangement for a quartet overnight Mm. on manuscript paper and then conducting it as he was of playing a big, loud, blaring Les Paul and Marshall solo while throwing outrageous shapes all over the place. David never had and proper on-stage foil, either before or since. I don't think the Ziggy thing would have been nearly as effective if it had been just David up front and solo with a bunch of guys standing in the background playing the backdrops. No matter how skillfully they did, it was the live attack. It always works well in pop and rock and roll if there's more than one person on stage who audiences can depending on gender and sexual orientation either identify with or fancy and for a lot of people who might have regarded you know david as too fey or remote there was rono giving it the working class guitar hero with muscles thing but the one quality that a great frontman solo person needs that Mick didn't have, I think, is the ego. You know, Mick is... was... I think of him in the present tense a lot. Uh, I mean, it's not an insult to say that he is one of Rock's greatest second bananas. Mick is a... was... A born collaborator he loves working with other people contributing ideas to their thing helping them to make their ideas work he doesn't have a front man's temperament and i think that the fact that he didn't have a front man's temperament is one of the reasons that he was such a likable soul because mm. he was so utterly unpretentious bowie on the other hand is incredibly pretentious just as he uses his short attention span as an artistic tool, he also uses pretension as an artistic tool. There's lots of people who ne- who'd who never heard of William Burroughs or George Orwell until... or Khalil Gibran, for that matter. You know, Bowie is an omnivore with a very lively mind, but he gets bored very quickly. Mick was a joy to be with because his talent had not gone to his head. You know, he didn't think he was fantastic, he didn't think he was brilliant. He knew he was good, which is a different matter entirely. But he didn't have the ego and the hunger and the desire to dominate that nature's front people have. You know, it's why he worked so well with Bowie, it's why he worked so well in the studio with Lou Reed, it's why he worked so well with Ian Hunter. Because those are people whose natural home is the spotlight. Mick liked the spotlight, you know, he liked his seven minutes while David was off stage changing his frock to go out and see if he could squeeze every lick Jeff Beck ever played in his life into one solo. You know, he could do the guitar hero thing superbly, but I can't remember who it was. Somebody who'd worked with him said, it's a mistake to think of Mick Ronson as a guitar player who did production work. He was essentially a producer, a arranger, who had outrageous guitar chops. I mean, if you listen to what was his first real pro job, which is the fully qualified Survivor album that he did with Michael Chapman which was actually the job that got him the Bowie connection, because Gus Dudgeon was producing Michael Chapman. And after the work that Ronson did on that, Dudgeon recommended him to Bowie, and they clicked. But you hear Mick, you know, a total unknown, on his first time in a pro studio on a session for a major label... And, you know, he plays beautifully on stuff like Stranger in the Room and Postcards from Scarborough and all the other stuff on that record. I mean, in a sense, right from the beginning, what you had was Jeff Beck without the ego. I know that's hard to imagine. To wrap up the importance of Mick's contribution to the
1: man who sold the world, here's Trevor Boulder, who was a friend of Mick's when they were kids growing up in Hull and played with Mick in many of his early bands, as well, of course, The Spiders from Mars. Was my best friend for many years. Um, he always played the way he played, you know,
3: I mean, from being a kid, from us being in sort of ravel bands. I was in a band with my brother and he was in the rats. And we always used to play this place called Beverly Regal, which is an old cinema converted into a club. And the bands would all play there. And uh, he was always magical as a guitar player. People used to go just to watch him play. You know, he had this huge reputation for being a guitar player. Within Yorkshire, you know, I mean, at the time. Lovely man. When I joined Rono with him, uh, I was the only one who had a car. And my wife, or girlfriend at the time, this is his girlfriend, and that we always used to go to Brid, when we weren't working you know, if we had nothing to do, and he loved to play bingo. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bingo fanatic. He would get the seafront i played Bingo all day, all day, and he, he smoked roll-ups, that was his big thing, smoking roll-ups, and uh, he liked to bet on the GGs, he liked to go in a betting shop, and he was a regular Joe, you know, he <laughs> was just a regular Northern man, you know, he just enjoyed doing all those things, you know, but a great guitar player, and a really sweet man, no, he had a wonderful, creamy, warm sound, didn't he? How he got that, I don't know. It's just in the hands, isn't it? You can give an amplifier and a guitar to one person, and it'll make it sound one way, and to another person, and he will make it completely sound different. You know, And that was in mixed hands, the way he played it you know, and stuff. It was. A, he would just pick out melodies that would get you every time. He wasn't a complicated player. He was a simple player, but brought out beautiful
1: melodies. You know, he, he had that ability to do that. Trevor Boulder, Charles Shaw Murray, Tony Visconti and Tony DeFreeze talking about the important part that Mick Ronson played in The Man Who Sold the World a role that would become even more evident with David over the next few years In the next episode, as we continue to mark the 50th anniversary of the release of The Man Who Sold the World DeFreeze explains more about the problems the record company had understanding and appreciating the album's cover art, title and even the music itself There are some great photographs, fascinating articles, telexes and letters and production notes from the Main Man Archive, all part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production.